But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 20, it says this, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like men who are fools and who speak without knowledge. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, once again we find ourselves in this wonderful book of Job. We know, Lord, that you have a purpose for each one of the books, each one of the letters, each one of the stories uh, in the Bible. We know that when we put it all together, we have a sufficient picture for who God is. I pray, dear Lord, as we consider the life of Job, the sufferings of Job, the purpose for what he went through, that we would see you in the light that you have painted for us. I pray, Lord, that we add nothing to and we take nothing away from the story, but that we see it clearly. I ask your Heavenly Father that if there are any people who listen to this and uh, are in need, that they would find comfort, they would be able, they would be built up by the words of that you intend to say in this book. Give us the meaning of the words as they're meant to be from you and not on our, from our own self. I ask these things for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 86 on the book of, of Job, part two of the Unseen Contest. Last week as we started to look at the book of Job, we looked at the history, the story found in in chapters 1 and 2, where a contest takes place that the hearers of Job are completely unaware, um, or the readers, those involved in the story at the time, just totally oblivious to the conversation taking place between God, who initiates it, and uh, Satan, who's always ready to be God's adversary. Men get uh, in the middle, but God uh, is hated by Satan, his chief angel, the angel who, like all other created beings, find their origin in God who created them, and then in Satan's case, turned away, wanted to replace God, if you will. And he makes accusations against Job, unfounded, because right in the book itself, there is God's statement that Job is an upright man, turning away from evil. He's a righteous man. He's a man who does what's right. He's not perfect by any any extent. But here's the thing. God makes a statement that Job is an upright man and there's no one else like him on the planet. So as the story unfolds and so much time is spent in dialogue as we look at the, the book itself, 
So much time is spent between Job and his three friends. You get three chapters out of 42 chapters that deal with that deal with the dialogue between Job and his three friends. You got chapters, more chapters that Job is doing the speaking in defense of himself as he's under attack by his three quote-unquote friends. And then you have remainder of the chapters four in which God speaks. You have the chapters in which Elihu speak, which is chapters 32 through 38 through 37. And in those chapters, uh, something different takes place from the three old friends. You got Job, not a young man by any stretch. You have the three friends. We don't have ages um, for the three friends or for Elihu, but Elihu is the younger man. And we're going to look at him and what is said today. But the three friends of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they just come at Job and they come at him from this angle that he's being treated this way because of his actions. They don't see how righteous a man he is. They don't see that God has greater plans. They don't see the contest between Satan and God in this matter where Satan accuses God of not being a God worthy of honor and that Job would never do that. He's only treating God with honor and respect and sacrifices and he loves his son's souls and all of this is due to God, but Satan's not going to give him any of that credit, but rather accuse him that because um, God protects Job and because God uh, gives Job blessings and he has to protect him from the devil, you know, that that's the reason that Job honors him. Take that away and he'll curse you to the death. And he doesn't do that. And then in chapter two, he takes away, he allows Satan to take away his, his good health. And likewise, he just stands firm and he doesn't curse God in chapter one. He doesn't curse God in chapter two. And then in chapter three, he speaks his, his, after his wife tells him to curse God and die. She's in equal pain where he is. He's in terrible pain. And he reacts. And again, what I said last week was, we don't know what attacks from the devil went into Job's mind. We're not privy to that, just the way they weren't privy to God's conversation with Job. And that's the way life is. Oftentimes, unless a person is accustomed and aware and has a discerning spirit uh, to hear the devil's voice, to understand the difference between our own voice, which can be in the flesh. If we're regenerate people, we can have we have contact with God and we can hear God's voice and have a discerning spirit there through the word of God, through what he said. But also, uh, as we are told in Romans chapter eight that his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God speaks to God's children. Uh, and I know that the charismatic movement has done much harm in this regard in the last century, so much so that it drives good, godly, fundamental people to a place they don't belong, as if God didn't speak to men. He does. And if he doesn't, you're not saved. 
God speaks through his spirit. Just spend some time in, in Romans chapters 4 through 8, and you see that. We are called to be spiritual men. And this is where we find ourselves with this person of Elihu who shows up, Elihu shows up in the book of Job. After Job um, just has had it with uh, the, the three friends, he rebukes Bildad in chapter 26. He affirms his righteousness in 27. He uh, tells of earth's treasures in 28. His Job's own past glories in chapter 29. His presence, present state of humility is humiliating before people in, in 30. And then 31, he asserts his integrity and his words are in an end. He's just done. He can't, he's righteous in his own eyes. No one could talk to him anymore. But now this younger friend shows up, comes on the scene. People always want to go to these places where they say it's not a, a person, it's an incarnate Christ. It's not. It's a person. And there's many reasons for believing that. So, so in verse 32, Elihu, we see him, he, he rebukes Job in his anger. His name is, he is my God, son of Barakal, or, or God blesses, Buzite, which means contempt, and he certainly has contempt for Job and the friends for reasons, and we'll see them as we read from the story, as well as uh, consider what he's saying. He's the family of Ram, which means high, like a mountain or like a gigantic rock. And this man has these qualities. He's a young man, and we'll see why he talks the way he does. Um, but he's just a younger man. He's not uh, ancient of days by any stretch of the imagination. He's just a person. And there's a reason for that. People need to be pointed in the direction of God, particularly when they're going through suffering, when they're being accosted by so-called friends, when they're being accused of things without knowledge, uh, you need a man to point men in the right direction. So in chapter 32, we read these words, beginning in verse 1, Then these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now Job doesn't start there. He starts by worshiping God. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'll, I'll finish my life. I'll go back into the earth, you know, he, he has this worshipful spirit. But, you know, you put a man in a ring and you beat him about the ring for, you know, for days and the man goes senseless. I'm not uh, extracting all responsibility for Job, but there's something to be understood about a person when he's under attack, when he's under accusations, when he's lost everything he owns, and he's been a very wealthy man, blessed by God, recognizing it and sacrificing for his son's souls all his life, and a man who loves his children, loves his wife, a good man, a man who gives freely, this kind of a man, a man righteous, doing the right things, and then uh, he loses everything. He loses his servants, they're dead, they're killed. Same with his children. He's in suffering and pain, 
And in the midst of this suffering and pain, and his wife is in the same state, and she says things undoubtedly out of hurt and pain as well. She tells him to curse God and die, and he says, you're speaking like a foolish woman, which she probably was not a foolish woman normally, but the circumstances can make us foolish. And Job now becomes accosted for all these chapters, all this time, which I don't know how long it was. He, he was in tears for seven days, it's true, but there's spans in between uh, chapters one and two and probably two and three, and there's time for him to understand how all his family is rejecting him and the servants that were left. And it's just a horrible time, a horrible, horrible time. And as a result of that, He's in pain and he starts saying things about God he would normally never say. And uh, Elihu picks up on these things, both uh, of Job and the friends. And so we read then, after that he was righteous in his own eyes, that Elihu steps in and, in verse 2 and says, But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. His anger burned because he justified himself before God. And even though he, his anger burns, he gives Job due respect and honor. We're not going to miss that. And his anger burned against his three friends, and it says why. Because they had found no answer, yet they had condemned Job. And there it is in a nutshell. They had condemned Job without an answer. They're just three basic idiots who are speaking as old men who think they have experience and knowledge, but they're speaking incorrectly. And God says it at the end of the story and becomes very clear. But Elihu understood it before God ever spoke, at least in this story. So his anger is burning because of the condemnation towards Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. So this is a humble man. This is a man who's not speaking out of turn. He's not throwing himself in the mix. He's stepping back. And unlike the other men who are just there to say what they have to say, Elihu is there to listen and to hear what's going on. He wants to hear what Job's going to come out of Job's mouth. He's going to hear what's coming out of the friend's mouth. And he understands what's going on. He really does understand. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. Now this is a serious situation. This isn't a man who's flying off the handle. This is a man who's listening and listening and listening, day after day probably, going into all these conversations that's going around. And as we have it, which is probably a shortened version but it doesn't matter. What we have is what matters. What we have is what God wants us to see and understand. So Elihu means he is my God. Elihu claims to speak for God. I'm going to read this. However, in verse 1, please hear my speech of chapter 33. Please hear my speech, Job, and, and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the integrity of my heart. He's, he's claiming integrity here. Not a loose cannon, 
not not just responding to words without knowledge. But he's speaking from the integrity. I'm speaking from the integrity of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. I mean, he's he's saying I'm speaking from the heart. Let's let's change gears here for a second. I'm not just reacting like you've been listening. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Two things there. He understands his creation comes from God, and there's a life beyond him, a life of God that speaks. This is not foolishness. This is not a man speaking in arrogance. Any child of God speaks for God. You you take the the Billy Grahams, the John Calvins, the Martin Luthers, the Jonathan Edwards, the the Martin Lloyd-Joneses. You know, you take these great men in history who spoke for God and so many others. You take the prophets. You take men who are just men, but they speak for God. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. These are just men, but they could say, what we are reading here. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. In other words, I'm born again, regenerate believer, and filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, you're talking about an Old Testament saint. Yeah, that's right. I'm talking about an Old Testament saint, an Old Testament saint, an Old Testament believer who could not possibly speak for God unless he had been touched by God, born anew, given a new spirit, regardless of the fact that he does not have the the knowledge of a New Testament believer who has the New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ. And all of that, he still has God, right? Let's, Let's speak as wise men. Moses did not have Pentecost. Moses did not have the New Testament truth. Moses had been given the law, and Moses spoke for God. And he's a chief person in the Old Testament. And he was a man after, a man of God, like David, who is a man after God's own heart. How does that happen in a sinful person? A person lost and dead in sins, Colossians chapter 2. Unless God does a work in a person's life. If that doesn't sound right because men say, well, the Holy Spirit wasn't given yet, blah, blah, blah. You know, you just don't follow men and what they think. Men are often wrong, and we need to stop, meditate, consider how these things be what they are. So he makes this statement. He's created by God, and the Almighty gives me life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 20, it makes sense of these things, even of Old Testament saints, for the knowledge they were given. David, like men of, the, of old, like Ezra, Nehemiah, men who understood the sacrificial system, understood that there was a coming Messiah, understand they were looking for God's salvation, they were looking to God for salvation. This is the heart of a man who has been touched by God. It's just that simple. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and beginning in verse 20, it says this, Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be like men who are fools and who speak without knowledge. Elihu was not one of those men. Why? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, not God's wisdom, its wisdom did not know him, 
God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So men had to go from the foolish wisdom of the world to believing God. And that always is the case. Whether it's an Isaiah or a Paul, it's always the case. Verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. God is wise like he puts fools to shame by his wisdom. And he imparts that wisdom to one degree or another in all those who call him Father, who call him God, as did Job, as did Elihu. Brothers, consider the time of your calling. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble. But God shows the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God shows the weak things of the world to shame the, the strong. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so no one may boast in his presence. Here you have it. Three older elder men who should know better and the younger man who is wiser. That's what's being said here. Verse 30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who become for us wisdom of God, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. The child of God is one who changes his perspective, or his perspective is changed by God. He goes from self-centered, ambitious, proud, foolish, unwise, to wise. The Spirit teaches all things, even the deep things of God, Paul goes on to say in verse 10. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except his own spirit within him? So too, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, not just in the new, but in the old, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Verse 13, what is, and this is what we speak. Not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit expressing spiritual thoughts in spiritual words. Where does all this spiritual come from? It comes from God. It can come from no other place. And so Job, and so uh, Elihu continues his rant, uh, uh, controlled rant. Refute me if you can. Line up against me. Take your stand. A little bit of assurance here because he's, he's speaking with God. Behold, I belong to God. There it is. And as he just continues in this vein, in this path, that he belongs to God like you. He's not criticizing them that they don't. He's merely saying that he belongs to God too. I too have been formed out of the clay. More humility. Behold, no fear of me should terrify you, nor should any pressure weigh heavily on you. He's here to... Speak the truth as a humble man. We don't get any of that from the three friends. And Job gets incited by the three friends to step into a place of equal uh, misunderstanding of what's going on. Elihu is different. Elihu in chapter 34 vindicates God's justice. Elihu sharply rebukes Job. This is in verse 37 and and, and verse 16, chapters 34 and 35. In verse 2, we read, Do you think 
this is in accordance with justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? He's rebuking Job here. For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What benefit will I have more than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and look at the clouds. They are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your wrongdoings are many, what, what do you do to him? He's putting things in, in order. He's putting God in his place. He's putting men in their place, not like the friends did who are pointing out the unrighteousness of Job. He's not doing that. Actually, he's talking about his response to the friends. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Okay, so what does a righteous man give to God by being righteous? You see, Jehovah Sitkanu, or, or the Lord is our righteousness, a name which I doubt that these men were given. This is prior to the giving of the law. But that is one of God's name. And if a man is righteous, the source is God, just like everything else. God's the source of all things. Elihu understood where, where he was creation came from, came from God. And he understood that the spirit came from God. And he understands that he's a man of, of clay, just like everybody else, and he's a humble man, and that's where he's coming from. And out of that humility, Job starts to listen. If you are righteous, what do you give to him? What do you receive from Or what does he receive from your hand? Big question there. Your wickedness is for a man like yourself, and your righteousness is for a son of man. That's a big statement. Uh, most used by Jesus in, in Ezekiel and other passages, he loved that phrase, son of man. The way Jesus used it was as the Messiah. We use it as sons of men, just, just men. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry for help because of the arm of the mighty. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night? This is basically talking about worldliness and worldly men. They don't understand where everything comes from. They don't give God any credit for anything. They're haters of God. Who teaches us more than the animals of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the sky. If you have an ear to hear, this is true. Verse 12, there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil people. God's silent because people don't have ears to hear and God doesn't speak to ignorant people. He converts ignorant people into wise people and then he speaks but not beforehand. God certainly will not listen to an empty cry, nor will the Almighty regard it. You can't talk to God like you talk to men, is what he's saying. How much less when you say you do not look at him. The case is before him, and you must wait for him. Big statement, big statement. Things are going on, and this is not a time to be shooting off your mouth, even if you have to defend yourself to your friends. This is a time to be quiet and wait. You have to wait. They're coming to all kinds of judgments, you know, just right, right from the gate. The horses are just leaving the gate to run the race, and they're already shooting off their mouth about things they don't know. Verse 15, And now, because he has not avenged his anger, nor has he acknowledged wrongdoing well, so Job opens his mouth with empty words. He multiplies words without knowledge. He's criticizing the fact that 
Job has responded in this way to his friends. He's already angry at the friends because they're, they're, they didn't find a cause. He already stated this. So he's set the stage for Job to listen because Job recognizes now that he's been responding to three foolish men. Elihu, Elihu does not see God as partial. He has reasons of which we need not be afraid. He has reasons for the things that are going on. That's basically what he's saying. And he's not partial to men. Oh, the good, he treats good, and, and the evil, he treats evil. You know, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, Jesus said. He causes the sun to shine on the just uh, for, for his reasons, whether it's on the just or the unjust. God doesn't play partiality. God chooses whom he will redeem. God predestines, he calls, he elects all kinds of terms in the New Testament to make certain that God is sovereign. He doesn't just respond to people. That's foolishness. Free will is foolishness. As if God just responds to men, as if God is no longer in control. Of what is God not in control of? Anything? No, he's in control of everything, or else you're not talking about God. You're talking about a man who's standing on the sidelines waiting for things to happen. Elihu does not see God as partial. Elihu stands for God, but not as Job's friends know him, knew him. He knows that God, whose ways are higher than our ways, he knows that God. He's not just jumping. He knew God, but not the God that Job became confused about in his pain. He knew God does not react to men. God is above and his ways beyond theirs. God makes the righteous so and the evil for the day of destruction. And Elihu spoke, Job heard the voice. When he spoke, he heard the voice of God. The best thing any child of God can do is to enable a person to hear God and understand him. God uses godly people in just that way. When you see a man in pain, in suffering, in a place where they have to make decisions and they're under stress, you have to take a step back. You have to consider things you don't know. You don't know what's going through this person's mind. You don't know what's going through his heart. On a weekly basis, on a daily basis sometimes, I'm talking to people in just that way. They come to, to talk about a, a new child, a child that they may or may not feel prepared to take care of. There's all kinds of issues that arise, family matters and interpersonal relationships and these things, and they got to think through it, and they need a person who will help them take a step back. Let's, let's think about things maybe you're not seeing or you're not thinking about. Then the Lord answered Job. After Job, after Elihu, brings them to this place after he, he goes through uh, this, his dialogue, after he says things like he did in, in chapter 33. However, please hear my speech, Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, now I open my mouth, my tongue in my mouth speaks, my words are from my the integrity of my heart, and my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. He goes on, You have in fact spoken while I listened, and I heard sound words. I am pure without wrongdoing. I'm innocent. 
and there is no guilt in me. Why? He hasn't said anything. Behold, he invents criticisms against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Behold, let me respond to you. You are not right in this, for God is greater than mankind. Why do you complain to him that he does not give an account of you of all his doings? Indeed, God speaks once or twice, yet no one notices it. In a dream, a vision in the night, when deep sleep falls on people while they slumber in their beds, then he opens the ears of people, he horrifies them with warnings, so that he may turn a person away from bad contact and keeps a man from pride. He keeps his soul back from the pit and his life from perishing by the spear. You know what? He's talking about a conscience. He's talking about a man hearing the voice of God through a God-given conscience that reasons the difference between right and wrong. It can be deadened, it can be silenced, it, it can be twisted by culture and other people. But you know what? It's there and it speaks. It may speak in a dream, certainly did in past times. It can speak through the word of God, which is the most potent, really speak. Verse 19, he goes on, a person is also rebuked by pain in his bed and with constant complaint in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his soul food that he should crave. His flesh wastes away from sight and his bones, <clears throat> which were not seen, stick out. Then his soul comes near to the pit and his life to those who bring death. This is the ways of men. Men born, they live, they grow old, and they die if they're not killed first. If there is an interceding angel for him, out of one out of a thousand, to remind a person of what is right for him. And don't, don't joke about that too quickly. You know, we're instructed to show hospitality to people because some have entertained angels unaware. That was a, that's a New Testament statement. How do you know when you've come across an angel? Can you know? It's obviously it's done unaware. People come across angels probably a lot more than we realize. Why? Because God speaks to people. And a day will come. He said, remember this person came along. Remember what this person said to you? That wasn't just a person. That was an angel. I sent as a messenger. I sound like I'm speaking like a charismatic now. I'm speaking from the Bible. Let his flesh become fresher than in youth. Let him return to the days of his youth, youthful vigor. Elihu continues, then he will pray to God and he will accept him so that he may see his face with joy and he will restore his righteousness to that person. He will sing to people and say, I have sinned and perverted what is right and is not proper for me. He has redeemed my soul from going to the pit and my life will see the light. He's speaking like a person who understands evangelism, who understands what goes on in a man's soul when he repents and exercises faith in God. This man's before Moses, but he understands these things. He said it right here. We got his words. He understood repentance and faith. Who knows what was carried on from Adam and from Enoch and from Abel and from, and from Methuselah and godly men throughout the ages. Behold, God does all these things for a man two or three times to bring back his soul from the pit so that he may be enlightened with the light of life. Pay attention, Job. Listen to me. Keep silent and let me speak. Then if you have anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I would take pleasure in justifying you 
If not, listen to me. Keep silent. I will teach you wisdom. Wow, what things to say from the younger man. Hear my words, you wise men, and listen to me. You who understand, for the ear tests words and the palate tests food. Taste food. Let us choose our, for ourselves what is right. Let us understand among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my right. Should I lie about my right? My wound is incurable, though I am without wrongdoing. What man is like Job, who drinks up derision like water? See, he understands the pain of Job, and he says it. Who goes in company with the workers of injustice and walks with wicked people? For he has said, it is of no use to a man when he becomes friends with God. It goes both ways. He, he drinks up the derision. He's shattered. He's accosted by people. And then he feels the pain of it, and he feels like God has walked away. And Elihu here is kind of consoling Job to say, yes, these things are taking place, but stop. Let's think about this together. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding, being a little sarcastic there. Far be it from God to do evil and from the Almighty to do wrong. For he repays a person for his work and lets things happen in correspondence to a man's behavior. God certainly will not act wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him authority over the earth? Who gave him authority over the earth? This is going. God does bless good and God does curse evil. And at the exact same time, God is not one who is like people who thinks through and just responds to circumstances. He's bigger than that. And that's why he adds this, this statement. He's not perverting justice. If he were to determine to do so, who has placed the whole world on him? You know, he's putting man in his place here. If he were to gather his spirit and his breath to himself, humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. See what that says? It's like Paul in, in, uh, in Acts on Mars Hill. You know, even your own poet said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. That's exactly what he's saying here. He understands that the breath of life comes from God. But if you have understanding, hear this. Listen to sound, the sound of... Uh, of my words. Shall one who hates justice rule? And will you condemn the righteous mighty one? Who says to a king, you worthless one. To nobles, you wicked one. This is what God says to the rulers. Who shows no partiality to the prominent. Nor regards the rich as above the poor. And here we're back to no partiality. Which has not been coming from the three men. Since they are all the work of his hands. When man stand in a place of authority, it comes from God. When men are poor, it comes from God. God does all the sovereign work in men. Men just take credit or they condemn one another. They look down on one another. They have no idea what they're talking about. In a moment, he continues, they die. And at midnight, people are shaken and pass away. And the powerful are taken away without a hand. Yeah, powerful people, rulers, men with money, and God says to them, you fool, this night your soul shall be required of you. It's the story that Jesus told. He continues in 21, for his eyes are upon the ways of a person and he sees all his steps. There is no darkness or deep shadow where the workers of injustice can hide themselves. 
for he does not need to consider a person further that he should go before God in judgment. He breaks in pieces the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. He doesn't have to investigate. He knows everything. Therefore, he knows their deeds, and he overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them like the wicked in a, in a public place. And so he continues, and he goes on, and he continues this, this rant before these men, and at a time does not allow me to go through all that Elihu says, but he goes through consistently in this way, exalting God to the rightful place and bringing people low. And then you have these four chapters. And when God doesn't explain anything, he doesn't give some doctrinal teaching, he doesn't explain the conversation between him and Satan, he doesn't need to do that, and he doesn't do it. Men can live in their ignorance if they'd like, but he says things that put Job in his place. Who is this who darkens the divine plan by words without knowledge? He's talking to Job now. He's actually talking to the good man. He's talking to the most righteous man on the planet at the time. He's talking to a man who turns away from evil and does what's right, but who got caught up in a very bad dialogue that made him self-righteous, that led him into self-righteousness, and that's where he went. Now lighten the belt on your waist like a man, and I will show you and you inform me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know, or stretch out the measuring line over it? On what were the bases sunk? Uh, or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? It just meant, he just mentioned the angels. Oh, they haven't even come up in any of these conversations, have they? Oh, he mentions them. The sons of God, whether they knew what he was talking about, I'm not certain, I can't say, but he mentioned it. Maybe it went in one ear and out the other, probably. Maybe not. Maybe they had words of that. Maybe they understood as, uh, as men, again, carried on certain things that took place in the garden, the fall and sin among godly men. Who knows what they knew? But they didn't think of it. They never even considered it. And so God goes on with this dialogue, chapter after chapter after chapter. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who rebukes God give an answer. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I say in response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not reply, or twice and I will add nothing more. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind and said, he's speaking out of a tornado now. He's speaking out of a hurricane. He's speaking out of a huge gale, gale of wind. He's speaking as the Almighty might speak. Not a still small voice right now. Now he's speaking as the Mighty One. And he speaks to Job, but he continues in this way. And he speaks about his might, that the animals bow to him, animals that a man can't stand up to. Then Job answered, and this is in chapter 42, coming down to the end. 
Job answered the Lord and said, I, I know that you can do all things. Now he's speaking like a humble man, like the man that he is from heart, the heart. He's growing through this situation. He's growing big. And this is the plan. To silence Satan, which these men are completely ignorant of, and in the process to make Job into something bigger. Not only is Job what he was before the tragedy that befell him, but now he's something even more that Satan can accuse and disregard and in his, his foolish ignorance is what becomes of all sinners. Accuse God with wrongdoing. So Job continued, Who is this who conceals knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Please listen and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. This is the humble Job. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent, sitting on dust and ashes. He takes his rightful place. He repented. This is something that we don't have knowledge of, of the three men in this story. I'll tell you why. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, and Job repented. Job grew. Job, Job humbled himself. Job just took it all back. That the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends. Not three friends, two friends. Why? Because you have not spoken of me what is trustworthy, as my servant Job has. Now he can be speaking about the repentance that took place in Job's heart, and maybe they had not gone there. He could be speaking about the fact that Job responded to these three men who accused Job, Job wrongfully, who made God a man who just responds to what men do, and if they're good, they get treated well, and if they do bad, they get treated poorly, If that's all there, as if that's all there was, as if that's all how God acts and reacts like men do, as if God doesn't know all things in man's heart before the end of his life, before eternity. He knows what's in eternity. He knows all of this, and he acts according to his divine, sovereign pleasure. God is not like men. God does not react to circumstances. God is sovereign and he plans everything from the beginning. He knew that he was going to do this with Job before Job was born. The friends are not thinking in this way, nor have they been. Now, therefore, God says, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Now they have to humble themselves. And boy, did they deserve it. And offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Just It's just eating crow. And my servant Job will pray for you. Wow, that's, that's tremendous. For I will accept him so as not to do with you as your foolishness deserves. Because you have not spoken of me what is trustworthy, as my servant Job has. Twice, says this. Twice he's making it perfectly clear that Job speak, spoke of God well 
and they have not. They incited him to evil. They were a stumbling block to Job throughout the whole story. Be careful not to be a stumbling block to other brothers if you're in the faith. Very, very careful. God does not take those things lightly. It's okay to rebuke people. Elihu rebuked all four four of them. The three friends in Job, Elihu does not get rebuked in this story. There's no mention. He comes and he goes. He's a man. He's a young man. He's a humble man. He's a man who walks in the spirit. He doesn't need any due. He doesn't need any honor. He does his job, and after everything is done, just say this, I'm just an unuseful servant. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. Why? Because anything good that comes through God's servants comes first from God. God gets the glory. God gets the credit. Not men. Not men. Why? God went to the cross to do that, to make it happen. To create, God had but to speak. To redeem, he had to bleed. To pay the price for sin. He had to bleed. And so the end of the story. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and so far the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. That's kind of an unnerving statement to me. It doesn't say he accepted them. He accepted Job. I don't know what the end conclusion is of these, these three men. I don't know if they were even saved. I don't know if they were godly men. They never spoke like godly men. They didn't speak of God as godly men. But it could be possible. They got saved in the process or they woke up. I, I don't know. I know that the sacrifices were made to Job and God accepted Job. And that's all I know. The Lord also restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. This is forgiveness. Job needed to offer up forgiveness because they had done him wrong, because they had been a stumbling block to him, because they had put him in a very bad place. And make no mistake, they could have been unforgiving feelings from Job. But he prayed for his friends. He prayed for those who did him much harm. And the Lord increased double all that Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. This is blessing. It's an earthly blessing. The blessings were far greater. Job woke up. Job once heard God with the hearing of the ear, but now he saw God. God was the great blessing. God was the great reward. The rest of this is it's passing. It's very fleeting. But it's a blessing still. It's nothing compared to receiving God. But it's there to show us that God doubled everything he had. He went from seven, you know, to to 14,000 sheep, and so on. But there's more. There's more to Job. He He had children. He had seven sons and three daughters. He gives them a family black, not the original family. The, The heartache, the suffering of all of that, God, Job knowing that shall not the, the righteous, the God of all the earth do what's right. He, he knew God to do that. And there's peace and there's contentment in that. And he knew 
in his heart, probably a God-given peace. I'm speaking outside of Scripture now. He had a peace with the, the children that he lost. All people die. But he went on with another family. And in those, there were seven and there was three. And it says there were none more beautiful than Job's daughters in all the land. And their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. This is probably not a time when daughters even got inheritances. They got uh, to marry into wealthy families or, you know, those type of things took place. But here he's giving his daughters inheritance. This is probably a departure from the culture. This is a bigger-hearted Job than even he was before. After this, Job lived 140 more years. One of the reasons why is this is a man who's living probably between the flood and Abraham. 140 more years. I don't know how many years he lived before. He might have lived 140 before. Maybe 60. I don't know. And saw his sons and his grandsons four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Full of days. Full of life. Full of the knowledge of God to a much higher degree. A much greater degree. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story. We thank you for men like Job who are righteous men. Men who stand upright because they turn away from evil. Because of God-given repentance. Because of God-given faith. Men who see God for who he is. Who do not speak like foolish men on the earth. But as wise men. Men made wise by Almighty God. Bless you, Lord. We thank you. We praise you. For the story that gives knowledge. Not only of how you don't react to things but you predetermine in your sovereignty all things to take place. Let us who are the people of God speak from that place. Not as foolish men who want to exalt to idol worship free will and make men uh, autonomous in themselves as though they were equal with God, but rather that we make choices, but our, our choices and our, and our will is limited. Greatly limited. It's not unlimited like God. And we have been hurt by sin. We've been damaged. We are brought into the bondage of sin and self. And we have to be broken from that bondage by a God who is sovereign over salvation. To you I give all the praise and all the honor and all the glory and all things. For this book, for the truths that it espouses, it it preaches to us. Let it speak to our hearts and change us into holier, more humble, more wise men. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.